Hi, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. In early 1980, a city bus crashed into the Peruvian embassy in Havana, Cuba. Somehow, this incident would lead to the mass exodus of over 100,000 Cubans, mostly via small boats from the communist island to the democratic United States. But there were many antecedents that brought the people of the two nations to that point. Here to help us fill in some of those gaps is historian Victor Triai, author of Mariel Boatlift, A Cuban-American Journey. I want you to set up for folks the time period of the 1970s, at least when it came to U.S. foreign policy. So, you know, the U.S. had a policy, I guess, from Truman on of when it came to the Soviet Union and other communist countries of containment, like they're not going to grow anymore. We're, we're going to fight them on that at least. But then starting with Richard Nixon, you had this, and uh, I guess you would count Kissinger within that, uh, you had this new policy of trying to play nice with the communist you know empires, thinking that you know if we give a little, m- maybe they'll give a little. And so I guess the best example would be Nixon uh, trying to be friendly with China, and w- we gave up being allies, so to speak, with with Taiwan, and they would in turn, you know, uh, back off in the Vietnam Vietnam War. And, and of course, that didn't work out. But in spite of that, you know, President Carter, seems to want to continue that policy of detente. At least that's my perception. So explain uh, if I'm right on that. And, and second, how did he apply that idea to Fidel Castro in Cuba? Well, I think that there had been some time already in the 1970s um, from other quarters uh, trying to, what they usually the word used is normalize uh, relations with Cuba. None of them quite worked out, but there were private sector efforts, there were activist efforts, there were artistic efforts, or whatever it was, there were also efforts on the part of the Cuban regime to try to engage uh, Cuban Americans or, you know, Cuban exiles or people who had left, you know, Cuba early to go to Cuba, but, and those were usually very, you know, left-wing youths who, you know, somewhere along the line became convinced of the Cuban government's line. But yes, in the 1970s, you had this period of detente. Uh, the United States was engaged in the in the Vietnam War and looking for a way out. Part of Nixon's trip uh, to China wasn't only to establish trade relations, but it was also uh, to counter the Soviet Union and to put pressure on the Soviet Union, uh, essentially by scaring them, mm-hmm. uh, that the United States and China might become allies. And, you know, I, I think with it, with it, with the best loss of presidential historian, you know, said that it was kind of a Rubik's Cube that, you know, only a few people could understand what Nixon was doing. And it did force the Soviets to sign the, um, the, the, the SALT Treaty uh, and whatnot. And it did get the U.S. to help uh, or rather to get, you know, China and the Soviet Union, especially China, to stop supporting North Vietnam or pressuring them to to. Uh, sign a peace deal or whatever. But, you know, as far as Cuba was concerned, Cuba was in what I call, I think, like the North Korea years. 
right, where the government had established such a massive totalitarian level of control over the entire population. I mean, it was a very unique period. I mean, this is all pre-internet. It was when the government could easily control information, you know, once it had taken over all of the media, you know, years earlier. The, the, the contact Cubans had with the outside world was minimal. And it was almost like the outside world didn't exist. I remember interviewing someone who grew up in Havana in a neighborhood that wasn't far from the from the port of Havana. And the big giant thrill for this person was to go with with his friends uh, to meet sailors, right, coming from other countries and just getting magazines from them. I mean, that was such a big revelation already, right? And then, you know, Carter came in and Carter wanted to normalize relations and start that process uh, of normalization. So they were, so there was a kind of a superficial agreement on uh, fishing rights and then an agreement on U.S. flyovers. Uh, and then, you know, Carter came in also with a big human rights uh, agenda. And, you know, Carter wanted to discuss political prisoners and ex-political prisoners. Eventually, the two countries opened not embassies, but intersections um, in one another's countries. And so for the first time, you had a Cuban intersection in Washington, a U.S. intersection in Havana. You know, and again, Castro was had been trying for years to normalize. One of the problems Castro had is that in the late 60s, Cuba had almost abandoned the Soviet model and took on a more radical Maoist mm -hmm. model. And it just, it's like everything else they've done, it didn't work out, right? And and that kind of ended with the, with the big sugarcane harvest in the early 1970s, uh, during which time they ruined what remained of the uh, economy and failed in their, in their goals anyway. And Castro had to kind of, uh, go back to the to the Soviet and the East Bloc countries, uh, get aid, and you know one of the uh, requirements was that you have to, you know, formalize the communist system, uh, you know, and and adopt more of a Soviet model, and and they did, and it, it's kind of you know in a way kind of funny. I mean, all of a sudden you see, you know, Castro and Cuban generals, you know, dressing up like you know Soviet leaders with all the medals and all this stuff. They adopted a constitution and whatnot, but it did put Castro in a situation where uh, he was more reliant on the Soviet Union and perhaps trade with the U.S. or some kind of engagement with the U.S. would lessen that. He had, he had reached a certain level of, I don't want to say prestige, but, you know, you know something where he felt uh, and was feeling increasingly comfortable. He had put a communist in power in, um, uh, in Grenada. He was helping, and by 1979, had essentially ushered in the Sandinistas in uh, Nicaragua. 1978 was a, was, a, was a good year. And so Castro felt, you know, confident. Hey, I'm doing well. It, and, and it was, you know, of course, you know, typical self-delusion. But, you know, the, you know, the idea of not just engaging politically and symbolically, but also, you know, inviting exiles to come back to Cuba and whatnot, and he felt pretty confident about that. And again, everything was, you know, going 
in a certain direction and it looked like there was going to be uh, a normalization. Castro reached out to a certain Cuban American and got him to sort of advocate uh, for that in, you know, in the U.S., uh, someone more mainstream, not someone who was, you know, on the radical left like those students had been earlier. Uh, and, and that's where the whole process commenced. Uh, again, but the Carter administration, you had a divided opinion. Uh, you had those who were who were you know more on the left, more politically minded, and then you had those who were more strategically minded. Mm-hmm. Cuba was also engaged in Africa in uh, numerous countries, and a lot of the more strategically minded said, "No, we shouldn't do anything until these people get out of these um, uh, African countries." Right. So you know, was it part of detente that that influenced Carter's? Uh, approach, perhaps, perhaps, but I think he came in uh, determined to do that, and certainly Nixon's opening of China, uh, I'm sure, I would assume, uh, played a big role. I mean, that was framed at the time. I remember I was just little. I was a, I was a kid. I didn't understand the first thing of the world, and yet I remember that. And what a huge deal it was. Not that I understood why it was a big deal when I was a little kid, but I remember the trip, and that's what everybody was talking about and watching on television. Of course, we know what happened in the long run with that policy, and like you said in your introduction, uh, didn't quite work out, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't necessarily think that Nixon's goal was to liberalize China, mm-hmm. uh, but there was, the, the, there was certainly an ideological current and, and there continues to be that if you engage these totalitarian repressive regimes, that it's inevitable that they're going to become more like us, that they're going to become free countries. And I think we've seen very clearly that that's not the case. And so was there some naivety uh, on the part of Carter, of, you know, engaging Cuba and, and what that can bring up, I think, without a doubt. I, I think the one of the mistakes that certain um, administrations have made in the United States is that they think that the Cuban government is more stupid than it is when it comes to these things. I mean, I mean, they're, you know, they know what's going on and they they know what to counter and, you know, they know what they're, you know, as far as staying in power and as, you know, as far as being totalitarian, they know what they're doing. They're simply not going to give that up. And we saw everything unravel, right, as a result of Carter's approach. And, and it didn't take long for things to unravel and for, and, and for Carter to see the true nature of what he was dealing with. That's interesting about the thinking that the Castros were stupid. I, I always just thought that uh, <laughs> Carter was just hopelessly optimistic that somehow he could take these murderers and make them see the light or something. But Right. And that's been the approach, you know, unfortunately for, you know, a very long time. I mean... You know, it's, you know, I always find it funny. You have people like, let's say, you know, policy toward X country. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, if we engage them and we flood, you know, them with news from, from the world, as if they're going to allow that, right? First, mm-hmm. that assumption. Uh, and then, you know, inevitably they'll become more aware and they'll know about what's going on. And eventually they'll just take to the streets and overthrow the government, right? They see it's just like this simple, thing and that's just that's just not the case i mean how many countries do we trade with currently that are you know brutal totalitarians uh and it doesn't change them one iota you know you just have uh the people who are positioned to make money making money and that's about it and 
I don't think it's any different now than it was then. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, of course, they're listening, saying, okay, so these people think that when they're going to trade with us, you know, they're going to see, you know, the New York Times, you know, and, and everything else at newsstands on the corners. And they know that that's what the expectation is. And, of course, they're not going to allow that. But it's almost like we'll surprise them mm-hmm. by doing this. And, of course, they're debating it publicly <laughs> as if the other guys aren't listening. Mm. And, and I think that, that that is kind of a fault that goes a little bit deeper, I think, in the United States, where the United States is the world, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and then there's the rest of the world. And, 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 and we do tend to be a little bit ethnocentric mm-hmm. here at many, many different levels. And with that, the assumption that we can do anything and no one's listening and, uh, you know, I mean, it's it just a lot of uh, naivety. And, and I think it exists in, you know, at, at all levels. Right. So one of the agreements Carter made with Castro was they were going to relax the travel restrictions. In your book, you chronicle how that really helped out Castro, at least financially. They were struggling because they weren't dependent on the Soviet Union anymore, or not as much for money. But this thing ends up injecting about $100 million uh, into their you know, cash flow. But one of the, the yeah, funny yeah. side effects of that is, or unexpected consequences, is you have some Cuban exiles at least returning to Cuba, not in a permanent uh, way, but, you know, visiting, like more of a tourist thing. But, you know, Castro had for years called these people that had left Cuba, you know, obviously unpatriotic, but also, you know, called them worms or gasanos. And you have a right. line in your book that they they came back and they seem shinier and, and uh, better than ever, like they were prospering in, in this evil United States or wherever they went to. So they came back butterflies, and so this created a, a counter narrative to the you know the communist propaganda, which again right. leads up to this you know pressure cooker situation we're about to get to. So talk about that if you want to. Yes, the regime began to liberalize visits in 1978 and opened the floodgates in 1979, in part because it felt very confident. Castro had just become chair of the non-aligned movement. 1978 was not so bad a year economically compared to other years under communism, which meant it was just less bad. But of course, they grew overconfident with that. In, in the big picture, it was, it was, I mean, really nothing. Uh, but they felt confident with it. You know, Castro needed money. Of course, after, you know, a number of gestures and people and whatnot, the discussions focused on two things, on current and former political prisoners in Cuba, uh, you know, and, you know, being able to, to allow them to emigrate, and family visits, okay? Families had become separated, right? And Cuba, during those years, I can tell you, I lived... You know, within the you know, con- you know, within the context of the exile community, Cuba had ceased to exist, right? I mean, there was no very little to no communication with Cuba. Um, even let, I mean, even if you wrote and called uh, back and forth, it was very difficult, right? Letters, you know, sometimes didn't make it. 
you always had to assume they were open and the Cuban government would let the people in Cuba know they were open by obviously opening them and obviously gluing them back together, even if they didn't read them, but they just wanted everyone to know, okay, that, you know, hey, we're reading these. Calls were extraordinarily difficult. A lot of people in Cuba didn't have phones anymore. State security, you had to assume they were listening. It took forever. You didn't just pick up a phone and call someone in Cuba, right? You had to call the operator. That operator had to call the other operator. That operator, I mean, it could take two or three days of just sitting there waiting for your phone to ring. And then you had to be careful what you said. So, you know, communication was minimal. But it also speaks, to, I mean, it speaks to many things. Yes, the people who went back to visit, again, Castro was able to leverage family sentiment, right? Family, when you left Cuba, you were basically told you are never coming back to this country, right? People in Cuba were told you are never leaving. You know, freedom flights are over, right? And and you lived as though, and, and whether they said that explicitly or they implied it, you know, whatever the case was, people in Cuba in their minds was, you know, what was in their minds was we are never leaving here. We have to live our lives here. Um, and then with minimal communication from the outside, not only minimal communication, but if you had relatives who had left in exile, that could already cause trouble for you, period. I mean, there may be people who, who weren't allowed to join the Communist Party because their brother left Cuba or whatever. If you communicated with them, that was even worse. And everyone knew that repressive machinery could be used you know, against you to one degree uh, or another, right? And part of the goal was to keep people in ignorance, which they did. Right. The number of I mean, the, 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 the Cuban government in Cuba, their version, which was the only version people had. OK. Or at least, you know, the vast majority was that you, you know, all those people who left Cuba, all those people you saw leaving in the early 60s and later on the freedom flights, they're all starving. They're they're in the United States and they're marginalized. OK. They're living on the margins of society. Many are homeless. Uh, they've had to turn to, you know, indecent and illegal activities just to survive while you guys are here. Everyone has a roof over their head. Everyone has this. Everyone has that. And again, if that's the only message you're receiving and there's no counter message to that, I mean, just the way the human brain works. And, and when you add to that, that around half the country by 1980 had been born after the revolution, when you add to that the number of people who were, say, young children when the revolution took over and had no memory of, of, of the previous period, and the number of people who they maybe realizing it, maybe not realizing it, just a survival instinct, made them erase that period because they had to live, right? And, and so their brain becomes receptive to receiving whatever messages they want you to receive in order just to survive, not to be repressed, not to have your children... Uh, uh, ostracized at school, not to go to political prison, not to have, you know, local neighborhood spies, you know, coming to your house, right? You know, it was just a, a survival instinct to comply. And complying didn't just mean behavior because it's very difficult for a person, you know, to be outwardly behaving one way and inwardly, you know, in another manner. And, and I think that, you know, just it, it's human nature that you just kind of adapt to it because it makes life easier. And they had the, the population, at least a large part of it, convinced that these people who were on the outside were living these horrible lives and that they, who lived under the, under the revolution, were the fortunate ones, which, of course, was a complete lie, right? Because what was going on among Cuban-Americans, Cuban exiles, was the period of what they called the Cuban economic miracle, right? I mean, the 
birth of Little Havana, the expansion of Cuban professionals. I mean, it was a miraculous economic thing. And I wasn't sick of it as a kid. I didn't really, you know, attribute anything having to do with Cuba or being immigrants or anything else. But I remember it was not a poverty-stricken community, far from it. And, of course, the risk that Castro was taking by allowing these visits, right, would be to reveal that. But the lure of money, right, was enormous, right? The lure of being independent. And, again, he was feeling kind of confident at this point. Uh, you know, the head of the non-aligned movement, and the Sandinistas and Maurice Bishop and all this other stuff going on. You know, and, and he felt that, okay, you know, I feel confident with this. You know, he allowed it to happen. Then, of course, he scammed these relatives. Now, now, who were most of these relatives? I've never seen a number on this, so I can't speak with any certainty. But I think a lot of the people who left in the first wave in the early 1960s, right, when that wave ended with the Cuban Missile Crisis in October of 1962, I think a lot of the families that were separated as a result of that, of that first wave, um, eventually... Um, during the, uh, the second wave, which were the freedom flights, which started in 1965, a lot of those families were reunited. Not all of them, but a lot of them were. But I think a lot of people left during the freedom flights, right, were the people who were more likely, you know, to, by the late 70s, be experiencing family separation. Um, not 100%. And that's just an assumption on, on, on my part, just from having talked to, you know, so many people who, who, who went through this. And so really someone who went in 1979, they may have seen some of these people in 1971, 1972. So some of the people returning had only been gone seven, eight, 10 years. All of a sudden, these people come back. They were ripped off. They were scammed by the Cuban government. Right. You had to pay a full vacation package, hotel, tours, all this other stuff. They weren't going to use any of that. The Cuban government knew it or only a small number. They were going to stay with family. They prohibited. Right. You know, taking appliances and, and other things. Why? Because the Cuban government set up special dollar stores in Cuba, which sold washing machines and air conditioners and dishwashers and whatnot. If you wanted to buy one for your family and you had to buy it with dollars. And of course, they engaged in massive, massive price gouging for it. So a relative that got there and wanted to buy their mother a refrigerator because theirs hadn't worked in 15 years may have had to pay two, three times the price it would have cost them to just simply ship it over, right? And in the, at the end of the day, the Cuban government, it's estimated over 100,000 um, Cuban exiles went, right? And, and the trips were very controversial within the exile community, of course, but they earned $100 million dollars for the regime and a hundred million dollars, right? Which was, I mean, it was a windfall of cash. But several things happened, right? In the first place, in 1979, in the, just while all these visits are going on and all these people are returning, right? The Cuban government, the um, Cuban economy tanked, right? There was a blight on the tobacco crop. The, the global price of sugar went down. And it didn't take a whole lot to make the Cuban economy tank, right? I mean, it was very weak to begin with. And, and the effects were felt throughout society. So while these visits are going on, the Cuban economy goes down. And what were these people in Cuba seeing during these visits? It was like, 
well, well, my my goodness. Um, this guy left Cuba 10 years ago. Here I am being told that he's suffering or people like him are suffering. And yet here he is. Mm-hmm. And he looks healthy. And he's got color. And, you know, a lot of the people I interviewed mention how different these people look, their flesh, their their color. They just look so incredibly healthy. People have gotten used to seeing what people in Cuba look like. And this stood out as a contrast. And they were coming loaded, right, with with clothes for their relatives and shoes and uh, medicine and toothpaste. <laughs> I mean, just everything. And they were going to the dollar stores and buying them, you know, uh, uh, washing machines. And not only did you have the common people seeing this, but you had, you know, local Communist Party officials, maybe not the higher ups, of course, but, you know, kind of the lower levels who had, you know, essentially compromised themselves and in, you know, any number of ways to be part of the repressive apparatus, thinking that they would benefit from it. And they're seeing these, you know, people who were not and getting their relatives and all of a sudden living better than they are in Cuba because of what their relatives were able to do for them. The relatives also came with stories about, hey, what it's like out there and, you know, what, you know, what their lives are like and look, and I own a home. Some people showed up. Some people were engaged in petty boasting, right? There's no question about that. But nevertheless, it's clear, you know, hey, yeah, we travel. We went to Spain last year. We take the kids to Disney World. Uh, you know, store shelves are full of food. Um, you know, my, my, my son got to choose, you know, what major he was going to do in college. My other son chose to set up a business. Right. And just this. And it wasn't, so it wasn't just material. It was just the freedom. And people in Cuba were living horribly repressed lives with a lot of unhappiness, especially among young males. Prospects for the future were zero. And now they were being asked to tighten their belts again by the government because of another economic crash. So those two things happened simultaneously. And the fact that the Cuban government right, was engaged in talks with the United States government. That led a lot of people to assume, to project, right, that this was, you know, that these talks were going to lead to talks about another wave of immigration. Last time they got together to talk, right, they planned the freedom flights, right? There was pressure in Cuba, and perhaps these talks are going to lead to immigration. Many families in Cuba talked, you know, quietly secretly among themselves because these conversations had to be in secret right listen if there's an opening right if there's an opening right which is the term they use right be ready you know be ready because we're going to come get you and the families in cuba were like yes please 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 you know and so that was already planted in people's minds and then what started happening well people got desperate enough which would have happened with or without the visits, I think, right? But this was also a time that U.S. policy toward Cuban refugees was that any Cuban could ask for asylum in the United States almost anywhere and receive it, right? All you had to do, you know, was, you know, essentially leave Cuba. And so a number of people started, you know, getting on boats, started trying to make their way to the United States across the Florida Straits, which is very dangerous. Many were picked up by the Coast Guard. Many, of course, perished. Um, but, you know, back then, if you were picked up by the Coast Guard, you were brought in and, you know, walked into the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, in Cuba, having a boat 
you know, Cuba being as abnormal a country as you can imagine, right, it was illegal for most people to own boats for that very reason, because they would leave the country. Mm. And so people built boats, people stole boats, uh, and then some very desperate people even, you know, hijacked boats, right, and forced them to go, you know, to the United States. I mean, you know, they usually wouldn't kill anybody or hurt anybody, but they just wanted to get here. Um, and, of course, this now starts to become a problem with the United States and the United States accepting Cubans, right? And of course the Cuban government, like it does everything else, blame the United States. That's, that's just an old story. I mean, if there's a hurricane, well, it's the United States fault. You know, if there was a crash <laughs> on the central highway, well, it was the United States fault. And of course people are leaving Cuba, well, that's the United States fault because they have this policy of accepting them. What gave it a little bit of, of, of um, uh, you know, what gave them a little bit of leverage is they say, well, some of these people are engaged in illegal activities. They stole a boat, right? And yet you're giving them asylum. Okay, so they started building that. But what they wanted at the end and what they were using that for was to pressure the United States to grant visas, thousands and thousands of visas. In other words, we want to empty the country as much as we can of mouths to feed by sending them to the United States and sending them with visas. Oh, and by the way, we, the Cuban government, right, get to choose who goes to the United States, mm-hmm. right, which of course, you know, it would have filled the U.S. with spies and supporters and everything else. Now, this was a time when the U.S. government simply couldn't do this, right? I mean, this, I mean, first of all, you know, the Cuban government dictating to the United States what its, what its immigration policy is going to be. And plus Carter by that time was in all sorts of trouble, right? Carter by that time was seen as weak, Right. You know, all the, you know, malaise and all of that stuff uh, in foreign policy, the, the hostage crisis in Iran, the Soviets invading Afghanistan. Carter looked weak on foreign policy. They could not add to that. Having the totalitarian Cuban government right dictating to him what his immigration policy is going to be. Right. And of course, you had the national security sector. Uh, saying, we shouldn't do anything with these people until they get out of Africa, right? And so that's where the pressure started to build, and that's where the political problems start to come in. Once again, the Cuban government, you know, cast the U.S. and Carter in this evil light, an imperialist, and this, that, and the other. And But, of course, the desire to emigrate, and then people were using any means, and one of the means that they used, and all this was making the Cuban government look bad, what the Cuban government did not and does not like to look back, right? You know, th- th- there was a deal among Latin American embassies, right? That if you are in political trouble, anybody in a Latin American country who is in legitimate political trouble could take asylum in any other Latin American embassy, right? This was something used in the early 60s by the underground and agents who had been burned. And, you know, if you got to an embassy and you got past the guards and you hopped the fence, you were safe uh, and you were on foreign territory. And so yeah, Cubans started, you know, going to embassies. And I think the Venezuelan one and the Peruvian ones were the ones that were most accessible, right? And so now all of a sudden the Latin Americans come into the problem by having numerous Cubans finding whatever means they could to get onto these foreign embassy grounds, right? And again, it, it was difficult because there were Cuban guards trying to prevent exactly that, right? And then that starts to build. And all this political pressure starts to build. This of the unhappiness starts to build. In Cuba, you start to have acts of rebellion, which they have, people haven't seen in years, 
right? Uh, 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 sabotage, um, uh, leaflet, spray paint. Uh, people started essentially not showing up to work or becoming less productive because there was no reason to work. There were no material benefits to working. And so the Cuban government starts to empower bosses at workplaces to take measures against workers that, that were very punitive. They started to enforce the law of dangerousness, right? So if you were deemed to potentially be dangerous, they could arrest you and put you in prison. You hadn't done anything, but they anticipated that you might, right? And that started to be applied. So the Cuban government's starting to lose control a little bit at this point, right? They're, they're looking bad at this point. You know, Castro knew, like he knew in the, in the mid-60s, that a great solution to all this pressure would be to relieve pressure and relieve pressure via emigration, right? And so things came to a head when finally the Peruvian embassy crisis broke out. So explain to folks what happened at the Peruvian embassy and why it became a crisis. Again, you had already this precedent of people taking refuge in embassies. People wanted to be anywhere but Cuba at this point. Like I said, the Peruvian embassy, because of its location and its layout, was more accessible. And there were already numerous Cubans there, and already the Peruvians had a problem. Just because you made it to an embassy, that's all you made it to. Then the Cuban government had to give you a safe conduct pass to leave the embassy, go to the airport, and go to whatever country's embassy you were in, if that country permitted it. Right, you got asylum. That didn't necessarily mean that you got an exit visa. And the Peruvian embassy already, you know, had several. You had a couple gate crashers and vehicles. The Cuban government had set up um, uh, boulders at the entrance and numerous guards and whatnot uh, to prevent any further entry into the Peruvian embassy. But then, you know, a young man um, had an idea. Right, he had driven a bus. That was one of his jobs. Um, you had other friends who go, you know, bought this still, and they noticed that some of the gates, right, not the main gate, but others were, were unguarded, and that perhaps with, you know, with, with a certain type of bus, you know, they could ram through them, and all you had to do was get on the grounds. And so this is what they did. It's a long, elaborate, very, uh, in, you know, when you read it, it's, it's very interesting just how, uh, elaborate the plan was. I mean, when it happened, I think most people just thought someone went nuts, you know, jumped on a bus while the while the bus driver was drinking coffee and drove it through. But it was <laughs> much more planned than that. But they eventually, you know, took it. Um, these friends and a group of others who joined them and no one else, right? I mean, they didn't involve, you know, people who who weren't part of this in it. And you know, in this in this very well planned and executed event. Uh, eventually made it to the embassy. They crashed through the gates. Of course, it didn't go exactly as they had planned. Uh, the Cuban guards, you know, surrounded and started shooting at them, right? Uh, one of them was hit, but not killed. And then, but one of the guards was killed, right? It was an incident of, you know, I guess what you call friendly fire, right? And of course, the people on the bus, though, were enough on, you know, had crossed the threshold to this um, a foreign uh, territory of the embassy. And of course, the person in charge of the embassy, they, they, they had recently recalled the ambassador because when Cubans had taken refuge there, the ambassadors basically turned them over to the Cuban government. And this ambassador's government in Peru was not happy about that, right? So that's our, you know, we're not doing that, right? And so 
person in charge comes out, he says these people are on, uh, you know, in our territory, and we're going to give them asylum. Of course, you know, with the dead guard and all this other stuff, and all of a sudden Castro goes ballistic, right? How much of it was an act? How much of it was staged? How much of it was planned? Or there was a contingency for this, you know, and a contingency plan for this? Who knows? But of course, he goes crazy. He demands these people, this, that, and the other. The Peruvians say not. The Peruvians already had a problem because they had to feed all these people that were already there, right? And they could barely do it. Peru's a relatively poor country, right? I mean, they they can't indefinitely provide food to you know to an embassy full of people. And of course, you know, you know now now they have more. So you know, long story short, Castro said, okay, well, we're going to teach the Peruvians a lesson. And so he comes out and announces that the guards would be removed from the Peruvian embassy. It will no longer be guarded. We cannot provide security to people who, who refuse to provide security for themselves, whatever, whatever, whatever. This was a clear indication to the Cuban population. The Peruvian embassy is open. Go if you want. What did they expect? Well, that's speculation. But most people think and who studied this that, you know, the Cuban government expected 50, 100 people to go, which would have been a humanitarian crisis for the Peruvians. They couldn't provide for that many people. And they would be put under pressure and they would hopefully rethink, right, their policies and rethink ever doing something like this again. Uh, and, you know, add that leverage. What the Cuban government didn't expect, right, is that there would be, within a couple of days, almost 11,000 people who basically just, I mean, just flooded the embassy grounds and 10,000 people. I mean, it was just unbelievable, right? And all of a sudden, right, it became this um, uh, media show. I'm going to try to find the exact number for you here, right? Um, and the, the, the press from all over the world, right, was covering this. And, of course, much of that press had been going on about how wonderful life in Cuba was. And this was an absolute statement of, no, it's not. Look at all these desperate people within a, with, you know, within a couple of days. Uh, look what happened. And, 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 you know, and, of course, some of these people, people of all ages, people of all professions, people of all backgrounds, uh, Communist Party members, right, who tore up their ID cards and threw them on the sidewalk, right? Police officers, you know, coming up in their vehicle, stopping, getting out as if they're, you know, looking at the crowd and then turning around and hopping the fence. I mean, it was, it was insanity. But then all of a sudden, right, it became a humanitarian crisis, right? It became a humanitarian crisis. The Peruvians could not feed these people. They couldn't provide for them. There were no sanitary facilities. People were packed. 10,000 people in an area about the size of a football field. People were on the roof. People were in trees. People were, were eating whatever moved. Uh, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, of course, I remember this. I mean, I was already like 13 going on 14. Um, it, of course, in Miami, and it was the first time I'd seen this, it just the exile community came alive. Uh, and there were protests and hunger strikes and, you know, and, and all these other things going on. And all of a sudden, Castro has a situation, right? He has a situation. And he has a way of taking situations and turning them around. So one of the things he did is he 
described in the official press and everywhere else, the Cuban government describing all of the people inside the embassy and who they were. And these were degenerates, and these were the people who didn't work, and these were people who were morally corrupt, and they were drug addicts, and they were deviants, and that's who went in. So if you're somewhere, you know, your town in Cuba, and you're wondering who these people are who went in, right? Those people that we generally don't like and that we're afraid of. And probably the people who are dragging down our economy, too. You know that lazy guy at work? Mm. He's the one who's in there, right? You know that suspicious person on the corner? That's who's in there. You know the drug addict? That's who's in there. You know the deviant? That's who's in there, right? And 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 that's the way they promoted it. But I think most people knew <laughs> they're not. They are ordinary working people just like me. And of course, you know, it became this leadership. I mean, Castro even went out there and, and eventually, you know, that's going to lead to the to the to the boat. Like you say, Castro turns these things around, and he did a lot of deviant things himself. Like they would allow some food into the embassy, but just enough to cause problems, right, like course. for people to fight of each course. other. Of course, uh, right? Exactly. People in there were starving. They were dehydrating. You had children. You had elderly. You had political. You had everything in there, right? But you did have some vulnerable people. And of course, you know, there were efforts in the exile community to raise food and clothing for them. The Red Cross offered help. The Cuban government did not allow any of it. The Cuban government said, oh, okay, well, you know, we'll send food. So there are 10,000 people, but we're going to send food for, for 500, mm-hmm. right? And they, would, and they would deliver them in these little boxes, really bad, you know, food, just, just from, a, from a, not, not just from a health point of view, but from a uh, food contamination point of view. And in little boxes, and of course, far less, I mean, a fraction of what was necessary, in part, so that people would start fighting, right? And when they start fighting, you know, the Cuban government on the other side of the gate, you know, could be filming this and saying, oh, do you see, these are the kind of violent people who are in there. I mean, they had newscasts where they're at a police station, and there's a table, and on the table it laid out all the weapons that were taken from these people, which was all false. Right, but that's what they were feeding the population. So first they discredited them, and then of course you had international meetings. What are we going to do with these people? They would then, and then the United States agreed to accept around a third of them. Uh, other countries, you know, from from Latin America, even from Europe, offered, well, we'll take five hundred, we'll take a thousand, uh, whatever. Right, and then Cuban government came in and told the people at the embassy, okay, go home, everybody. We'll give you a safe conduct pass home and permission to leave the country to whatever country accepts you. Okay, so please leave, let's end this. And some people did, because some people were just tired and, and worn, many people didn't trust them and stayed. And, you know, they just didn't trust it. Then the Cuban government went, you know, gave letters, created passports to convince more. Some more went home with the full expectation that they were gonna leave the country. Um, but some, you know, continued at one point. Uh, and this is just typical, you know, Cuban government fashion. They kept people in there and they stopped letting people go, right? Even if you wanted to. And they did that because they were going to have a giant march of a, of a million people, right? To show support for the revolution. And of course, it was going to march right past, right? The embassy, in part, as, an, as, as what they call in Cuba, an act of repudiation, 
right, against the people in there. So you had to have people in there if this was going to work. So, so let's leave them in there. And, and I guess, you know, the part that is tragic and, you know, maybe humorous, uh, during that march, there were people, you know, they're shouting and you're worms and, and U.S. imperialism, this and that, and the other, and carrying their signs and their effigies. And yeah, uh, they wanted, they hopped the fence and the some of the people marching. I mean, it was, it was insanity, mm-hmm. right? But somewhere in all of this, and again, how much of this was planned? How much of that? Nobody knows, at least not at this point. But, you know, there was already established, you know, earlier uh, what they called the Group of 75, which were 75 exiles or people from the exile community uh, who wanted to engage Cuba and wanted to normalize. And, and a lot, you know, and, and you had a mix bag of people, but very controversial in the exile community. The vast majority of exiles was against engaging, of course. And and so this group, you know, in the exile community and their efforts were controversial to say the least. Right? But there was one of them in Cuba at the time. He had an idea. And, you know, he remembered the Camarioca boat lift of nineteen sixty five and how Cubans in Miami, when allowed to, right, were allowed to go to Cuba and pick up their relatives and bring them to the United States on a boat. That eventually was scrapped, right? I mean, because the U.S. government never sanctioned that. It was very dangerous. A lot of people died. And that eventually led to the freedom flights, right? So this guy said, you know, this guy had an idea. And he said, hey. And he met with some contact he had in, uh, some higher up in the Cuban government. He said, well, listen, here's my idea. Okay, let's have the people in Miami come over here, like in 1965, back and they can pick up these people from the embassy and take them. I mean, I mean, I mean, by this time, um, you know, they were already taking people out of Cuba. Castro said, no, the, you know, you know, taking them to Peru, right, which was the first plan and dispersing them from there uh, isn't a good idea. He said that very early into the flights. Let's find somewhere closer, meaning let's send them all to the United States because he knew that they would never leave to the United States. And then Costa Rica came in and said, no, no, we could, okay, that's fine. That's great. Send them to Costa Rica and we'll distribute them from here. Uh, that's not what Castro wanted, but now he was kind of in a corner. People start going to Costa Rica. Of course, these people who were in the embassy, not only were suffered in the embassy, but when they leave the embassy with their safe conduct passes, they were often assaulted in organized assaults, not, not spontaneous outside their homes, outside the embassy. They'd be put on buses and, and dropped off where, where there were people where there were people waiting. When these people went to the airport to go to Costa Rica, of course, they had to run a similar gauntlet. So when people got to Costa Rica, they were kissing the ground and I'm free and talking to the press about how awful Cuba was, showing them fresh bruises and cuts. Uh, and, of course, that was embarrassing to Castro, and so he cut it off. And then someone gave him this idea, right, let the exiles come to Cuba, and take away these embassy asylees. And, but, well, why would they do that? Well, you also tell them that if they take away the people from the embassy, that they could also take their relatives with them. And all these people are expecting for some, you know, means to, you know, get out of Cuba, you know, you know, via their relatives, we could tell, well, come to Cuba, take X number of, you know, these 10,000 um, uh, asylees, and you could take X number of relatives, and they'll come. And, of course, you know, Castro, you know, eventually that made its way to Castro. Castro agreed. Did Castro have this in mind already? Who knows? These are, 
you know, people's memories, talking, memoirs written, interviews, uh, you know, over the course of many years that, that, that other people have done and, and that I read. But this person who gave Castro the idea supposedly was back in Miami, back in his home, and a Cuban agent, right, which is a name everybody knows, showed up at his house and said, or called him and said, uh, number one says yes on your idea, but the port of departure won't be X number of ports, it'll be Mario. So this person goes on the airwaves in Miami and and starts to say, oh, the Cuban government is gonna allow you to take out your relatives, you need to take out the people from the embassy, Port of Mariel, this, that, and the other. And of course, that triggered, I remember it, but this response that was over. I had no idea what was going on. I mean, I was in eighth grade, I was 13 years old, I happened to be in a school in Little Havana that year. I didn't live in Little Havana or anywhere near it, but there was a Jesuit school there, um, and, and I was there for eighth grade. And I remember on the corner of Southwest Atrium 27th Avenue, the protest for the um, um, uh, embassy crisis, right? But, you know, also just the buzz. And I remember I was with my mother, and I'll never forget, and we were in a neighborhood which was not Little Havana. But it was a very Cuban neighborhood, nonetheless. And, and, and we were driving around because we had to go pay a carpenter. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, you know, I know, I just know all this tension's going on, but I couldn't have explained it to anybody. I, I wasn't the type of 13-year-old who would sit there and read the papers, right? Um, and my mom points out, or I notice, or something, but, you know, at one point she says, wow, look at all the people getting the boats ready. It was like a weekday. And I, and I asked her, why are they getting the boats ready? And she looks at me like, I mean, what are you, an idiot? <laughs> she says, they're going to Cuba. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, for me, Cuba was, this, you know, the planet Krypton, right? It was, I mean, I didn't, in my whole childhood, there were no waves of people coming from Cuba. Anybody who came from Cuba was already here, right? I mean, Cuba ceased to exist. Cuba, you know, blew up. And, and, and the people I was around were the people that, you know, got off the planet uh, before it blew up. But, you know, it, it opened my eyes, my God. Cuba's there, it has people, and it's so close you can get there by a boat. But Havana's closer to Miami than Tallahassee is. And of course, then the message to people in Cuba was, anybody who wants to leave, <laughs> right? You know, not, well, if your relative comes and this, that, and the other. No, 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 no. The, the message to the Cuban government gave the people was, if you want to leave, leave, which of course wasn't true because a lot of people were banned from leaving, including members of my wife's family, right? My wife left, she was 13, but she had to leave without her parents uh, because they, they didn't let them go. Uh, so not everybody was allowed to leave, and, you know, which is one of the great tragedies of the Mario Boltness because what did Castro do? Or Castro, meanwhile, in Cuba, turned this around. And that those labels he put on the people in the Peruvian embassy, he now put on anybody wanting to leave Cuba. Right. So now you got these millions of people, potentially 125,000 were able to leave. But you have all these people, all the all you had to do was come out and say, I want to leave. That's it. You became one of them. You became ostracized. You lost your job. You were an enemy of the state. And then they organized mobs, right, organized mobs to go against anybody who was leaving. They sit outside their house screaming about obscenities, throwing eggs, you know, putting excrement. I mean, it was just horrific. Many people, you know, several people died in this process, right? You're now one of them. And, and, and the worst thing about all that was that that's just because you expressed, you expressed a desire to emigrate. That was your crime for all of that. 
You were forever ruined. You were humiliated. You were embarrassed. Children in school, if they found out that your family had put themselves down to leave, teachers would organize the other students against you. I know people who their parents had to walk them you know, to school and back because they were being persecuted. These little kids, right? It became up. That's for expressing a desire. Now, can you imagine those people who express a desire to go? And when the day came to do the paperwork, they were told, you cannot emigrate. You have to stay in Cuba. <laughs> like, what do you, I got to stay here? After, you know, you know, you know, things had already been triggered against them. And a lot of those people had to stay, right? And, you know, who were not allowed to emigrate, but they, they lost their job. They lost their lives. And they were, you know, persecuted for a great deal of time, you know, having to live in Cuba or survive in Cuba, right? Because, I mean, at least if you were leaving, you know, it would persist until you were on the high seas. Uh, and even then, the Cuban army got you because they deliberately overloaded all the boats so in order for them to sink. And they would send them, would only let them go when there were storms. Right, right. They would manipulate that. A boat would show up, oh, how many does this hold? 25, put 50 on this one. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, this is the government authorities doing this. Usually, if, if, if the government authority intervenes, right, in, in maritime issues with, with boats, it's usually, I'm sorry, you got too many people on that boat. No, everybody needs... Um, a, 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 a life vest, and, and that boat only carries this many, here's a fine, you know, or we're impounding your boat. Or we're, no, no, here it was the opposite. Here the government authorities were forcing you at the point of a gun, right, to deliberately engage in highly dangerous practices in order for people to die. Mm-hmm. But that's much later in the process. Right. But yeah, and so now Castro turns it around. And they're, oh, you're going to see when we get rid of these people, everything's going to be fine. You know, we are where we are because of these people like these, because of the drug addicts and the deviants and the lazy people and the people who don't work and the people who don't do their duty. Those are the ones who are leaving, which, of course, wasn't really true anyway, but nonetheless, it was convenient. right? And they deliberately stirred up hatred against these people. Now, again, hatred and the projection of hatred of, against people uh, enemies in Cuba, it, you know, again, is an art form almost because they know that, yes, you had those sectors of the population who their the hatred when they were part of these mobs was very legitimate, either because they stood to gain, right, or because they were part of the you know revolutionary structure, either at a low level or a high level. Right. And of course, they stood to, you know, they stood to lose if the government was overthrown. They stood to gain by showing their loyalty. Right. Which in Cuba is really, you know, a survival mechanism. Right. Or you had those who were just true believers. But you also had a large number of people. It would be impossible to say. I would like to, you know, believe in humanity and think it was a majority. But people were simply forced to do this. And many people were forced. There's no question about that. Children in school, the teacher would say, okay, everybody line up. We're going out. Hey, awesome. And they might even give you something. And it's like, so where are we going? No, we're going to suck and suck this house uh, because they're, they're, they're worms and they're leaving the country and we're going to shout and throw garbage at them. It's teachers leaving this stuff. Now, what choice do those kids have but to be there? And if you're an adolescent, you better not leave because questions will be asked. People at workplaces, hey, everybody get on this truck, let's go, let's go. And of course, people, you don't question these things. And, you know, they might, and, and I don't I mean, I've heard stories where, you know, like a doll doll, they, there'd be rum on the truck and food, and like, oh my God, communist Cuba, that just doesn't happen every day. Where are we going? Oh, we're going to such and such a place. And it was to persecute people, you know, to be part of a mob. There were people who knew they were leaving on Marielle 
who had received word from their relatives somehow that they were there, but the local authorities, local teachers, local uh, bosses uh, at work didn't know. So you had to just go along for the time being, right, in order not to have any suspicion on you. Right, and that was very common. I talked to a lot of people who were in that. Too. They hated it. They hated every minute of it. Right, having to go, and you know, they would just like kind of halfway shout or not shout, or just kind of get lost and and leave at the first opportunity. But they had to go, and knowing they were leaving, and yet they were compelled, you know, to be at least visibly part of a mob that was persecuting people who were leaving. Right, but that's the degree of totalitarianism, right? That's that's the, the power that they have over you. So, so how much of those, what they call acts of, uh, of repudio, I came up with a better interpretation of the term acto repudio, but I, <laughs> I forget it now. Um, but uh, the act of disdain, mm-hmm. right? And it's like an, 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 a public act of disdain against these people. But again, look at the persecution I mean, step back and look at the big picture. First of all, it is a human right and a recognized human right to emigrate. It is a, it is a, a, an internationally recognized human. Now, it's not a human right for a country to necessarily accept you, right? But if you elect to emigrate and you have a place, you know, to which to emigrate, right? That's a human right. That was already denied by the Cuban government. You couldn't just pick up and emigrate because someone gave you a visa. Right. I mean, you face persecution. All right. Let's put that aside for a minute. Let's suppose that doesn't exist. What exactly happened here? What exactly did these innocent people do to elicit that sort of official response? Okay, having people outside of your house to 100, 200, 500 people who don't even know you. And and some and a lot of them may have even been your neighbors. A lot of them, that, that mob may have included your relatives. Right, who all of a sudden turned on you, right? Because they were they were they were true believers or whatever you know their motive was. Outside your house, banging on pots and pans, screaming, insulting you, in you know insulting your parents, right? Throwing eggs, cutting off the electricity and gas to your house. Okay, you know you know you know finding excrement from toilets and spreading it all over your front door, uh, your walls, breaking your windows. Right. And then, of course, when you left, my God, you know, you weren't you, you didn't just go and take a bus to a dock and get on a boat. Right. They they put you through filters, the last of which were the concentration camp where they virtually starved you and 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 and, and the barbed wire. I mean, it was horrific. And, and then they put you on a boat overloaded that it would think, what did these people do? The only thing they did was to express a desire to emigrate. That's all they did. And yet look at what happened. And let me tell you something, it was so out of control and I've been told, again, I don't, I don't know if this is true. I, I have a reason to think it is because of, you know, you know the, the individuals who, who've expressed this to me, right? In Cuba, they never talk about this, ever, ever. Because it was so bad and it was so difficult to justify Right. Even for these people who are the Cuban government, which is essentially amoral, I have no moral, they have no beliefs, they have no standards, right, that they don't talk about it. I know one filmmaker you know, who went over who came on Marriott, okay, and 
someone asked him what he was doing and he told them. And then this person came over later and said, listen, I want to apologize to you. Not just for me, but on behalf of the entire Cuban population for what was done to you people. Right. And that had to be told in secret. Right. And all they did was express a desire to emigrate. And most of whom simply wanted to reunite with their families. That was their grave crime. Obviously, most people know that Castro also used this event to clean out his prisons and insane asylums, and he forced Cuban exiles who were picking up their family members to also take these folks back. And that's probably most people's memory of that is that it led to this crime wave or these riots in prison and all that. And uh, of course, your book has a lot of wonderful stories, and you you try to say that, yeah, they definitely were a factor, but they were not the majority and uh no and, no and most of these folks not by any means. and most of these folks would end up settling in america or elsewhere and you know uh do, doing pretty well i i like the last line of your book it says perhaps it is time for the american people to tell the cuban government that much of what its communist leaders once derided as escoria or, or scum has been transmuted into america's gold uh, talk a little bit about how that in the end this whole thing benefited america really Right. Well, you know, one of Castro's goals and one of the things, one of the many things he used this for, right, was to, to whatever degree possible, to tarnish the image of the exile community. Some people, you know, called the Cuban exiles um, up to that point, the, the golden exiles, right? The, you know, this, this community that just got here with nothing and immediately built an economy, immediately built a community, uh, immediately took leading roles in, in medicine, law, engineering, architecture, you name it, right? It was, it, and, and, and super, super patriotic uh, to the United States, super loyal, anti-communist, right? It was like a dream community. And Castro knew this, right? And, and, and it also probably would <laughs> just bother him, right? That, these are the, that, that all those people, all those incredibly talented, energetic, creative people that built that community are the people that he kicked out of his now crumbling uh, country, right? And, and, and so there was probably some resentment, right? And Castro always resented, uh, you know, people who were educated and talented and, and everything else, right? And, 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 you know, from his youth, I mean, we can go to, into his psychology, I suppose, but that would take all day. But anyway, so he wanted to tarnish that image. So not only did he send a lot of people that no family had come for them, right? But he deliberately, you know, tried to send what in Cuba they called antisocial or undesirables, right? And um, if you were an undesirable, right? And they set up a temporary immigration office in your town, you know, you, that would help you get out of the country. Right. If you came up and said you were, you know, however they define a sexual deviant or a drug addict or I don't work or whatever. Right. Okay, good. You're gone. Of course, people, a countless number of people lied about that as a way to get out of the country. Sometimes the people making the determination um, were bribed, like, you know, the head of the local um, uh, uh, committee for the defense of the revolution or to the block by block 
watchdogs. You know, it's like, hey, you know, I'll give you this if you write down on this paper that I'm this. And 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 of course, they you know they did. And so, but now as far as the you know, so a lot of that was false. Um, a lot of that were people self-identifying uh, in order to get out of the country. Um, as far as, you know, prisons and insane asylums and this, that, and the other, uh, yes, there were people released from prison and some people pressured to leave prison, right? Um, and yes, there were mental patients. However, however, a lot of people have been in prison for things that normally wouldn't be a crime in any other country, at least not any other free country. You might've had someone who was, you know, you know, in, you know, back alleys dealing black beans, right? Mm-hmm. You know, cause there was, there was a black market for food, right? Well, that was a political crime in Cuba, right? You may have had someone in prison for trying to, to leave the country illegally, meaning getting on a boat, trying to get to the United States. Well, they were in there too. You had a lot of these people who were guilty of crimes who were, but they had been in prison and they were emerging from prison. And with all the trauma that comes from having been in prison, as far as hardcore, you know, delinquent, uh, murderers, it's impossible. Because again, people came from Cuba almost without documents, without anything. So, you know, I, you know, the, the immigration authorities really had no way of determining anything, but it's assumed, it was assumed by them that about 2%, right, might have fallen into that category. But again, you also had a lot of people who had just been in prison and had all the effects, you know, of prison coming out. Um, you know, you also had a massively disproportional percentage of young males without family, right? Which, of course, you know, any you know crime statistic tells you that that that's you know kind of a danger spot. Um, you know, and 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 of course. Uh, as far as mental patients, I think if, if I'm, I'm trying to remember, but I think the number is 600 and something. But again, we're talking about 125,000 people, right? If we isolated those, if we looked at those 125,000 and isolated those who would be problem people, right? We're talking about this is a guess, five, seven percent. Okay, meaning that 93, 95 percent, right, went right into society and never caused a problem. Now, what caused the problem of perception? Well, Castro deliberately put these people in, okay, just enough for the United States not to stop, right, the exodus, right, because if he overdid it, they would stop the exodus, and enough, right, for these people to be present and draw cameras. And Castro made it very clear to the press of the United States, I'm sending you the scum of society. Look for them, you'll find them, and find them they did, (laughs) right? And so a lot of people got here and went straight to their families. You never heard from them again, right? The people who became the problem people are the ones who stuck out, right? And so you have, you know, okay, a, a crime wave in Little Havana. Who committed a Mario refugee? All 125,000? Mm-hmm. No. If you look at prison statistics of the number of people in prison in Miami-Dade County during that time, a very small percentage were people who'd come from, you know, through the Mario Boatlet. If you ask most people, how, what percentage do you think it was? They would think it was 15 times 
the actual number, right? Um, and, and so, yes, a lot of these people appeared on the street. A lot of them were uh, young males uh, unaccompanied, you know, by family or, 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 or anything else with no family in the United States. And I remember, even as, as a kid, you could tell the Mario refugees on the street. That's a Mario refugee. There's a group of Mario refugees. They just look different. They look, but again, the person that might have been next to you in the fancy department store, okay, waiting to pay, that looked just like you did, may have been a Mario refugee too. There may have been 15 of them around you, and you would have never known, yeah. right? But that, that percentage, whatever it was, 10, 15, 20, whatever it was, Right. There was a sort that you recognize as a Mario refugee. And that became part of the problem because that in many people's mind became the Mario refugee. Right. The problem person that you saw in the news and the, and the news media focused on them, uh, looked for problems, manufactured problems, especially at the camps in Arkansas and, and, and other places, put fear into people's minds, as the media often does, um, you know, of these people. So, you know, people are consuming media reports. They're watching the local news in Miami. They're driving around. And yes, the Mario refugee is dangerous. Right. When really it was only the ones who were visibly Mario refugees that had a chance to be. And even a lot of them weren't dangerous. Right. They just looked different. Right. But some of them were. And so the stigma developed. Anyone who came from that, that became the Mario refugee for everybody. And, and of course, you know, it became and, and they'll tell you this. Oh, my wife's a Mario refugee and, and had to live with this. Mm-hmm. Right. It became a stigma. You said the word Marielle, that's it, right? You had that M right on your forehead, mm-hmm. right? And and it was it was awful. And then you know in 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 you know you mentioned the prison riots, right? It, they passed legislation in reaction to a lot of this to, to to the perception, right? Okay, eventually the people who came on Marielle were not considered legally refugees because they got mixed up and complicated by the Haitian refugee thing. I'm not gonna go deeply into that. You read about it. You can ask me questions on that if you like, right? But they were, they were, they were given a parole status. But if you came on Marielle, not, not from anywhere else and not even from Cuba by any other means, if you came from Cuba on Marielle and you violated your parole, you were immediately deported, okay? I mean, and violating your parole could have meant killing someone or it could have meant driving a car to the corner without a license and getting caught, right? And so you had all these people being picked up for petty crime, minor crimes. Oh, you came on Marielle. Oh, wait a minute, now we have to deport you, right? Oh, wait, you're Cuban? Oh, you came during Marielle, but um, but you came on your, but you know, you, you asked for asylum in Mexico. Oh, no, that's okay. We're gonna find you, then you can go back. Or you can serve six months in prison, then we'll send you. But if you came on Marielle, a whole different set of rules applied, okay? And that was, and, and this is one of the tragedies of, of the boat lift, because the problem was, oh, we'll deport you because we will consider you never to have entered the country, even if you had entered it. We will legally consider you as never having entered the country and we will deport you. Okay, great, okay, deport me. The problem was the Cuban government wasn't taking anybody, right? So what do you do with these people? Okay, well, you warehouse them. Right, you clear out some prisons and just stick them in there. Many without a trial, many without a hearing, many without lawyers, with no 
legal rights whatsoever, and we're just going to stick you here until the Cuban government takes you back or you die. One of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to die in prison, right, or the Cuban government's going to take you back. But, and that's that. And you have this, this tragedy, right, of these people in prison. Many of them had families, right, and in a limbo, a complete, total, legal limbo, right? They didn't know what was going to happen to them. They didn't know how long they were going to be there, right? You know, some of them had, say, you know, committed, you know, some kind of an infraction, right, for which they paid. And then after they paid that, then they were taken there. It's like, oh, well, okay, we caught you doing this, you know, two months in the county jail, right? Oh, oh, oh by the way, since you came on Marielle, when you leave jail, we're not going to take you one of these warehouses, right? One of these prison warehouses. I interviewed a guy, okay, who, first of all, was forced to leave Cuba by the Cuban government because he had some kind of a conflict with the local Communist Party boss in his town. They forced him to leave on Marriott. He didn't want to leave on Marriott, but they forced him to. He got the Key West. Do you have family here? Yes. Where? And, and I, think, I think he said Worcester, Massachusetts. But he had a very thick accent, mm-hmm. right? And he spoke no English. And Worcester is not the easiest, you know, thing to say, you know, if, 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 you know, you speak the foreign language, right? He goes up there. He was a welder. He got a job as a welder. Okay. He's going, everything's going fine. Months go by. Someone gave him, you know, a marijuana cigarette, you know, smoking it, you know, and all of a sudden he ran to a local cop. And this is Massachusetts, which had pretty liberal laws already on this. Local cop says, put that out. He put it out and kept walking. I said, no, you don't. And he explained to him, well, that is illegal. He didn't even know it's illegal. What? Oh, okay. So they arrest him. They take him to a local police station. Okay, what's the penalty for that crime? It was, it was a financial penalty, right? It was $50 or $100 fine or whatever. He calls his cousin. His cousin comes down, pays the fine. End of story. Case open and closed. You did something illegal. You were caught. Here's the penalty. You paid the penalty. Goodbye. As he's leaving, the immigration authorities were there. It's 1981. Okay. They say, I'm sorry. You violated your parole. They arrested him and send him down south to a prison. This guy was in prison from 1981 until 1999. Okay. When he was finally let out through through, through some programs, the efforts of some lawyers, uh, etc. Okay, eighteen years in prison, and it wasn't a sentence. He was warehoused that long. Mm-hmm. Right now, the prison riots you mentioned. Okay, there was a deal in the early eighties, uh, or the first half of the eighties, um, whereby Castro agreed to start receiving some of these people who were warehoused in exchange for, you know, X, Y, and Z. Okay. So, and this is under Reagan. So groups started, you know, they started to announce who would be sent and there were generally people who were indeed problems because there were some very serious uh, uh, criminal problems among, among, or, you know, individuals who were, who were serious problems. They start to send them, you know, in groups. And then all of a sudden the U S in 1985, launches Radio Marti, mm-hmm. right? And then the Cuban government, of course, you know, has a fit, and the Cuban government shuts down that program of receiving these uh, former Mario refugees. So they're again warehouse, right? But it started to become a problem. There were legal challenges. There were, there were decisions on, you know, from the bench saying you cannot warehouse these people indefinitely, 
right? You have to hear their case, whatever. There was a lot of resistance um, from the U.S. government. There were appeals, etc. But again, they were in a limbo. They established a program uh, where they would review. It was very strict. And they would review your case. And if they thought you were okay, they might release you. These are people who had already served whatever sentence they had to serve, whether it was a financial penalty or whatever. And, you know, and there was some hope there. What nobody knew is that the Cuban government and the United States government had again reopened negotiations on taking people back. And they'd agreed to a certain number. And eventually that was released. Oh, X number of the Cubans being held, you know, in these prisons are going to be returned. But they didn't put any names to them. They didn't put any names to them. It was just the number. So what does everybody think? Oh, my God, that's me. That's me. They're going to send me back. I have my family here. You know, I just went through this program. They told me that I might be released. I have hope. But I didn't do anything. I just got caught driving without a license or whatever it was. Right? And there was panic. Okay? And in Atlanta and in Oakdale, Louisiana, right, the Cuban prisoners took over the prison. It wasn't a riot. You used the word riot before. It wasn't a riot. Right? They, it was a prison takeover. Hmm. They killed no one. Right. They actually isolated the Cubans who they knew to be serious problems. They isolated them. They separated them. They took over the prison. Cubans got killed that were taken over, but they didn't kill anybody. This wasn't Attica, like in right. uh, upstate New York. You know, I mean, there was not war on the guards. You know, in fact, they, they treated them very well. They took it over to make a statement saying, we want our cases to be reviewed one by one. Sadly, very few of those people were on that list, but they didn't know that. We want our cases to be reviewed one by one. And they did this to put some pressure you know, on the U.S. government to be fair, right? And if some of us indeed deserve to be deported, then deport us. But we not this en masse blind deportation because some of us are innocent. Right. And then, of course, you know, the problem got resolved. The Justice Department, uh, um, local efforts, uh, Bishop Roman, etc. And eventually the cases were reviewed one by one. And most of those people got out. Right? But it was slow. It was very, 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 very slow. And the last, I think that when the Supreme Court finally came down in 2005 and said, you cannot hold these people who haven't had a, a trial who, who you, it wasn't until 2005, 25 years later, hmm. right? And there were still 750 Mario refugees being held, right? Which is just mind boggling. And it was tragic because the vast majority of Mario refugees led good lives. They came here. Some of them were sent to refugee camps if they couldn't find relatives or sponsors. Um, you know, eventually and there was a lot of problems with the camps and, and, that you can pin on the Carter administration, 99%. Um, you know, but, but eventually it worked out most of these people. So for the vast, overwhelming majority of refugees, right, you know, everything went well, you know, in the end. You know, but there were, there were those cases of, of, of those people. And, you know, again, something that had, had it been handled better, mm-hmm. right, probably wouldn't have happened, nor many of the problems in the refugee camps, right, which were atrocious. I mean, I mean, it just in short, right, since since in, in March 1980, okay, a month before Mariel, when no one knew Mariel was going to occur, right, they passed the Refugee Act, 
which created this beautiful system and government agencies and whatnot and coordination for refugees. A month later, Marielle happens. Nobody was expecting that. And of course, oh, well, I guess these are the latest refugees. There was a Cuban refugee center which still existed in Miami. But, right, there were protests about, you know, treating, you know, Haitian refugees and Cuban refugees equally. And the administration said, well, we're not going to do that because they considered the Haitians to be economic refugees. And if we set that precedent, what's that going to do for the rest of, you know, for all Latin America, right? Okay, so the solution was we're going to, considered neither one of them to be refugees, right? They're going to be entrants, which meant that the refugee program, right, or, or the Refugee Act and what, it, and what it created was not to be used for these people. And they bypassed the Cuban Refugee Center. And the Carter administration then made what a lot of people consider a fatal mistake. They gave the problem of Cuban refugees, right, to FEMA, right, which comes in like after ice storms and hurricanes to deal with a refugee crisis. And they had no clue that they acted like they knew what they were doing, but they didn't. Those camps they opened were a disaster. If you look at the fate of unaccompanied children, right, you compare the Cuban children's program established in the early 60s to what happened to these kids who were unaccompanied, it was disastrous, right? And a lot of the problems stemmed from that, right? They stemmed from that. They also stemmed from the fact that the Carter administration was very distracted early on. I mean, this happened when Operation Eagle Claw occurred, which was the failed attempt to rescue the U.S. hostages. I mean, you had a full-blown crisis by the time anyone in the White House paid any attention to it, right? And and so, you know, again, one thing that, that, that Dr. Juan Clark, um, who, who unfortunately passed away uh, about a decade ago or almost, um, you know, he had great insight into all of this, you know, and he considered it absolutely a critical problem that the Cuban Refugee Center and the experts there weren't used, right? They were simply bypassed. And I think a lot of the problems you had, right, you know, with the mayor refugees or those that caused problems wouldn't have occurred. They simply would not have occurred because the, the, the process would have been handled much better by knowledgeable people who understood these people, understood what they were coming from, understood what mindset they had, and and, and all of that. So I think a lot of these problems um, could have been avoided. I think that the press stirred up a lot of fear, right, of all Mario refugees, even though maybe, but let's exaggerate, let's say it was 10% were a problem. Right. To the point that, you know, oh, if you were a Mario refugee, that was a stigma. That wasn't just a stigma socially. It became a stigma legally. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so, you know, the generosity of allowing them in, you know, is kind of counterbalanced by the very negative human consequence of, of how it was handled. And I think that there was a lot of suffering or, or the suffering was exacerbated massively by how the Carter administration uh, handled it. Not allowing them to come, but what happened when they came. I think a lot of the problems would simply would not have been, would not have existed. Right. Some would have inevitably, inevitably. You know, you got 120,000, most of the people came with Marielle started in April. Marielle technically ended in the fall, but 90% of anybody who was gonna come with Marielle were here by the end of June. So we're really talking about a couple of months 
okay, that you had 125,000 people, of course it's gonna cause problems. And when you have Castro and, 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 and then his government manipulating this process, of course you're gonna have problems. But I think those problems would have been drastically reduced had the White House uh, handled it more effectively. If you'd like to hear more of Cuban history, Mr. Triai has authored several books on the many episodes of the island, ranging from the Bay of Pigs to Elian Gonzalez. In addition, he's been back by the woodpile a time or two before, notably on episode 259, where he talked about an earlier Cuban exodus to the U.S., but chiefly of children, Operation Pedro Pan. Also on episode 272, Cuban political dissident Orlando Luis Pardoa Lazo tells us about his efforts in reporting human rights violations by the Castro dictatorship and how it cost him. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or podbeam.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. (laughs) 